We're going to read Colossians chapter 2. Tonight we're talking about baptism, and so we're going to look at a variety of passages tonight. I want to begin Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. My mentor uh, came to the Presbyterian view of baptism uh, through these two verses, and he wrote a paper on it for his uh, THM, and it was influential thus in my own life as well. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, And in him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And then if you go to Romans 11, here. Actually, just hold your finger in Romans 11 a minute. Let's, I want to get to that when we start preaching. Let's go to chapter 28 on baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ. Keep that phrase in mind there, his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Excuse me. Number two, the outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. <clears throat> Section three, dipping of the person into the water is not necessary. But baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Number four, not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. <clears throat> Section five, <clears throat> although it is a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, Yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Number six, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. And then number seven, the sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered unto any person. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, well, tonight we are going to talk about baptism, and we're going to talk about it. It's important. It's actually one of the most important things that's ever been done to you. 
What is the most important thing that's ever been done? <clears throat> Have you ever thought about that, boys and girls? What's the most important thing that you've ever done or has ever been done unto you? Well, the Bible says that baptism is one of those most important things that's ever happened to you. And yet, a lot of Christians don't even think much about their baptism. Um, and yet, if you look at the letters of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, uh, almost in, in the majority of them, he mentions baptism. It, that is, it was far more important, I think, in the mind of Paul as he wrote congregations often than it is in contemporary Christians. Now, yes, we're going to talk about the controversial parts of baptism. Who's to be baptized? Uh, should infants be baptized? And what kind of baptism, what kind of mode should we use in baptism? But before we get to those things, I want you to appreciate that baptism, the meaning of baptism, the significance of baptism is what is most important in this subject because baptism signifies the work of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned, I think a week or two ago to you, that oftentimes evangelicals, we put this on our head and we think that baptism is something that we do to communicate what uh, we have done. But baptism is not so much, look what I have done, but baptism is look to Jesus Christ in what Jesus Christ has done. That is the water that is uh, administered signifies a picture, a reality of the washing that Christ has done by way of his death on the cross. Now, I said we were going to read Romans 11. Let's look at Romans 11. Why do I want to begin in a, in a chapter in the New Testament that doesn't even have the Greek word baptizo in it? Why do I want to start here? Because I think we're not going to really rightly understand this whole issue of baptism unless we understand what God is doing in the church. That is, baptism is our admission into the church. And we need to understand who's a member of the church and who, who, who you know, is supposed to be baptized. So let's look at this. I want you to look at Romans 11. Let's just go ahead and start. We could start at a number of places, but we'll start at verse 11. And I want to read and comment here as we go a little bit before we actually delve into this subject of baptism here. Now, let me give you the background. In Romans chapter 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is preaching about God's sovereignty and salvation, particularly in Romans 9, he's talking about the doctrine of election. And this raises a question in the minds of both Jews and Gentiles. Namely, Paul how is it, if your gospel is so great and so powerful and so wonderful, why is it that, relatively speaking, so few Jews came into the church? And why is it that more Gentiles are pouring in as time goes by in this first century? Has God forgotten the promises that he made to the people in former days? And Paul says, far be it. From God, may it never be. Look at, verse, look at verse 1 of chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And he goes on here to talk about how God, though, has brought a judgment 
upon many of Paul's contemporary Jews for their rejection of the Messiah, a hardness has come over them. Uh, Look at verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then look at verse 11. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. Now notice what Paul does here. He says, but by their transgression, that is by the transgression of the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, that is the Jewish nation, jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? That is, Paul is looking to a time when Jews will be brought back into the visible church. He says, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry. Now, Let's go on down to verse 17, because here's where I want you to really focus here. So Paul says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were engrafted in among them and became partaker with them, who's the them? Israel, of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Now, get the picture what Paul is saying here is. You have a tree of grace. You have a tree of the covenant of grace. Paul says the covenant that God has made with his people is like a huge oak tree. Or, in this case, olive tree. And Paul says that in God's Severity and judgment. He has cut off some of the unfruitful branches in that tree. Now notice that there's one tree. There's not two trees. There's not a Jewish tree called Israel and a Gentile tree called the church. There's one tree. And God breaks off some of the branches of this one tree and he takes you, you wild olive branches, you Gentiles, you people who were outside of the covenant, you who were not of Israel by nature, you who were not of circumcision, you who were not the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at one time, and he does what? He brings you into the tree. He brings you, he engrafts you into this tree that belong to Abraham, or does, belongs to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The tree of Israel, its roots and its trunk belongs to Israel. You have been engrafted into Israel. And so he is saying, don't you Gentiles become all proud and haughty and mighty, saying, look at us, we must have been really good or special, that God would choose us and engraft us. He says, branches were broken off so that you might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, and you stand by your faith. He says, don't be conceited, but fear. Now I am coming to baptism, hold on. 
He says, but if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. If he can cut off a natural branch from this tree, he can cut off the one that was glued in. He says, behold, the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, it was severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Now, having made that point, understanding who we are, In God's covenant of grace. Now let's look at the passage of Colossians chapter 2. Because Paul is writing to a congregation made up of Gentiles. And they're worried, have we done everything to enter into heaven? Among other things. Because there was a circumcision party out there running around telling churches that unless you were circumcised, you could not be saved. You can read about that in Acts 15. And so Paul wants to assure these Gentile believers that indeed they have everything they need for membership in the church. And so look at, if you will, in verse 10, Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. And in him, in Jesus Christ, and above that you can see all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. In Jesus Christ, you have been made complete And he is the head over all rule and authority. Now look at verse 11. In him, in Jesus Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Whoa, wait, stop. He's telling Gentiles you're circumcised. Forget about these Judaizers who are trying to shake your faith telling you you're not going to heaven unless you submit to a rabbi who will circumcise you. He says, no, no, no. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have everything you need for heaven. You've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then come to verse 12. When did this happen, they say? Having been buried with him in baptism. Baptism is the sign and the seal of your entrance into this tree. When were you engrafted into this tree? You were engrafted into this covenant community as a Gentile when you were baptized. Paul is teaching here that in the covenant of grace, there is now this new administration. The old sacrament of circumcision applied to boys on the eighth day of believing parents has now been replaced by baptism. Just as the Passover of the old covenant has been replaced by the work of Christ and by the Lord's Supper. Now we have circumcision being replaced By baptism. We were buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. My point of looking at Romans 11 and now Colossians 2 is to see that baptism is the sign and the seal of the covenant of grace and represents for us everything that circumcision represented in the old covenant and more. And so that 
we who uh, by nature are Gentiles have been brought into this tree, glued in by the grace of God. And now our entrance into this covenant is by way of baptism. And as I said last Sunday night, that's why, for example, Lutherans, you know, put their baptismal font not up under uh, on the front like we do, but they put it actually right in the doorway here so that you, as you come into the sanctuary of a Lutheran church, one of the things you have to do before you take your seat in the pew is go around the baptismal font so that you are always reminded that this is the entrance into the church by way of baptism. I am a baptized man. I am a baptized woman. The believer is to say as they come into the place uh, of God in Jesus Christ. So that um, Richard Pratt used to explain it this way to us. You you need to think of the covenant, um, something like a a big box. And within that big box is a, a smaller box. And, and, and entrance by way of baptism brings us into the big box. We are in the visible church. The big box is the visible church. And within the big box is the smaller box, still big, but smaller. And that is the invisible church. That is those who truly are elect and saved and will be in glory. What baptism does is it brings us into the big box. We are brought into the visible covenant community of the church by which we are nourished. Uh, Whether we come as, like I did, I came to to Christ and started attending church as as a young adult in college, or whether it's by way of uh, being born to Christian parents who baptize you uh, in the church and you have grown up in the church. You are in the big box uh, of the covenant of grace. You have been engrafted, if you will, into the tree of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we must all exercise faith in Christ. That is, the baptism, if it is rightly to be appropriated to us, has to be understood as pointing us to Jesus Christ. There's nothing within the baptism itself that regenerates you. And that's why you see the Westminster Confession of Faith rejecting the Roman Catholic doctrine of baptismal regeneration. So we do not believe that the baptism is the moment of regeneration. You know, for all I know, many of you were regenerated before you were baptized in your mother's womb. That's not necessarily um, extraordinary in the sense that John the Baptist, we see he leapt in his mother's womb uh, when he heard the sound of Mary's voice. And, and so he was filled with the Spirit. It's possible for the Spirit of God, and I can put it this way, to cause you to be born again before you're born. Um, it, it, we do not know. Jesus said, the Spirit moves as he will. I can't command the wind outside to blow on any tree. You and I cannot command the wind to come here or go there. And in in the same way, we cannot command the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God can regenerate a a prenatal child. It can can regenerate a 90-year-old man. Uh, The wind will blow where he blows. So baptism is, is not tied to the moment of regeneration there. 
But at the same time, we have to reject the view that baptism means almost nothing at all. That's the other view that we have to militate against here. That baptism isn't all that important. In fact, some churches show that baptism isn't all that important because they baptize over and over and over the same person. And we reject that as well. There is one baptism. There is one Lord. There is one faith. And we do not baptize people over and over and over again. That, is, that, that does not make the sacrament and enhance it in the eyes of God people. It diminishes it. Baptism is important because baptism is my entrance into the body of Christ. That is when we come into this visible community of Christ is at our baptism. You know, I was listening to a message by Sinclair Ferguson, and he said that, uh, you know, the real cutting edge uh, is not in the United States, but is in England um, in terms of liberalism, that now people are demanding baptismal uh, repudiation certificates, he said. Baptismal repudiation certificates. And Ferguson said, now, lest you think, oh, that's terrible, uh, as a kind of knee-jerk reaction, he said, you know, at least these people are taking baptism seriously. Now, it's tragic that they are rejecting the claims of baptism and what it means. It means our union with Jesus Christ. When you're baptized, Romans 6 tells us that it is a sign and a seal of our being united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Christ has died and has been raised. And so I too, Paul says, have, been, have died with Christ. And I have been raised in newness of life. And so when somebody requests of the church a baptismal repudiation certificate, they are saying, I, I reject Jesus Christ altogether. I want nothing to do with him. And Ferguson said that it, it, at least, though, they in some ways could be commended that they take baptism seriously. How many Christians, he said, in the United States are baptized and yet uh, do not live it out? How many, how many people, especially here in the South, have been baptized uh, and yet you know, never darkened the door of a church? They don't take their baptism seriously and the consequences of it. Now, baptism is to be rightly administered by using water and the triune name of God. We baptize with water. There's nothing magical about the water. The water doesn't become anything spectacular in the moment of baptism. But it is because we apply the water in the name of of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That, the, that when, you know, um, Ferguson has argued that, that, that baptism is a naming ceremony. And it is where the, the, the name of the individual is being now united to the name of God that has been revealed. You realize, you know, uh, one of the most significant things about Matthew 28 when we, we usually think of it, it's, it's so significant because it's about the Great Commission. But really the most significant thing about that is that's where God's triune name is revealed for the first time. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together in one place. And that what baptism means is that your name is now united and tied to the name of the triune God. If I could quote Ferguson one more time, he gives this illustration. He says, imagine, imagine for a moment that somebody from Mars comes and their job is to um, travel with you, follow you for two weeks. And then they have to write a report on the meaning of baptism for their commanders back at Mars. And he asked the question, would they understand anything about baptism based on your life? You see, baptism, in a sense, means everything. It means that the totality of my being, my life, my time, my talents, is given in this union with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Our baptism is highly significant. For those of you visiting, by the way, we accept any mode of baptism. If water in the triune name of God is used, we accept it, whether it be sprinkling or pouring or by immersion. And so it's not us who are invalidating so many other Christian baptisms uh, out there. Now, as long as we're talking about the mode, (laughs) what do you believe, Pastor? Well, let me say this. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I, too, believe that any mode should be acceptable to a church. And so we will take people from Baptist backgrounds, Episcopal backgrounds, (coughs) as long as an ordained minister has applied water in some manner, and has done so in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if you want to ask me what I think the mode of baptism was in the New Testament, let me first shock you to say I don't think it was immersion. Now, I'm fine with immersion. In some ways, immersion does seem to parallel nicely with Romans 6. We will grant that. I do want to make it clear, too, that despite, I don't know why very smart men keep saying this, but this is not, this just simply is not true. Baptism does not always mean immersion. And I know there are people out there, it's like this echo chamber, they always say this, you know, that everywhere the word baptizo is found, there it means immersion. No, it doesn't. You don't even have to know Greek to know this. I mean, you could just read your English Bible and see that that is not true. Jesus said, I have a baptism to undergo. And what is he talking about? He's not talking about his time with John in the Jordan. He's already done that. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about, I have to go to the cross and undergo a judgment, a baptism. Baptism means to overwhelm. Jesus was not immersed into the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And we see the same, I would argue, for the mode of baptism being pouring in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you look at Acts chapter 1, 
after the resurrection, Jesus is with his disciples, and he tells his disciples, look, you, you know, John baptized with water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So it's Jesus who compares water baptism to the spirit baptism. Everybody see that? Okay, Jesus, Jesus said, look at, look at verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. Now, what's the promise? The promise is the Spirit. The Spirit is going to be given. Look at verse 5. For John, that's John the Baptist, John the Presbyterian, John the Presbyterian baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So everybody see the parallel there. John baptized with water. I'm going to baptize with the Spirit. Pretty simple, right? The question mark we debate in our circles today among evangelicals is, question mark, how did John baptize with water? Did he immerse? Did he pour? Did he sprinkle? That's the question mark. That's the, that's the point of contention, isn't it? How, what was the mode of baptism? What's the mode of the water baptism? Question mark. Well, let's let the spirit baptism inform the mode of the water baptism. Because it's Jesus who said, John baptized with water and I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So let's look at Jesus' baptism of the spirit, shall we? Look now to the next chapter in chapter 2. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from where? From heaven. Where is heaven? Heaven's above you. Okay? And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, excuse me, to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance here. Here's my argument. Water baptism parallels spirit baptism. We argue and debate all day long as to what the water baptism mode looks like. But here in Acts chapter 2, there is no debate. The Spirit came from above. The church was not immersed into the Spirit. The Spirit was poured out on the church. The cloven tongues rested upon them, on their heads. I would argue that the mode of baptism that is most biblical is the pouring. So you say, well, pastor, it says that Jesus came up out of the water. How are you going to how are you going to deal with that? That sounds like John immersed Jesus. No, my friend, <laughs> I don't think that's what happened. Here again, notice the connection between water baptism and spirit baptism. Jesus walked into the river Jordan. You can't walk into it without coming out from it. You have to go into the water and then come out of it. Jesus waded into the water, I believe, and John took water and poured it on the head of Christ. 
Let me ask you this. How many offices does Jesus hold? Three. Prophet, priest, and king. What did we do to kings when they began their office? We anointed them. What did we do to priests? We anointed them. What do we do with prophets? We anoint them. When was Jesus anointed for this office, this trifold office? What was the moment in time that Jesus was anointed king? It was at his baptism. Jesus was not immersed into the Jordan. John anointed Jesus into his public ministry by the pouring of the water. And then what do we read? As the water is poured out on the head of Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes down upon him from where? From above. Just like in the upper room, the Spirit was poured out on Christ and anointed Christ. By the way, that's what Christ means. Christ means the anointed one. And to anoint usually is symbolized by the pouring. So the Spirit comes down like a dove upon Jesus, and Jesus comes up out of the water by walking up on the bank. So I don't think that when it says that Jesus came up from the water, it is, we are not to imagine that he was immersed by John and then came up. Now listen, if I'm wrong and we're in heaven, you can say, hey, you said he, you thought he was poured up. I'll own it. I'll own it. But I think the biblical data is sufficiently clear. I think the data is sufficiently clear. Now, again, I'm not against immersion. If, if that's how you've been baptized, I'm not going to make you get baptized by a different mode. That's what the Baptists do to us. We're the more charitable. We're, the, we're not excluding anybody from church membership based on the mode of baptism. So I do believe that the, the, the mode was that of pouring. Now let's talk about, and i got to do this kind of quickly, running out of time here, let's talk about the other controversial subject, and that is, who's to be baptized? Uh, we all agree that believers are to be baptized, okay? There is no disagreement. Everybody who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if they have never been baptized before, we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. The debate that rests between us and many of our evangelical friends, and they are our friends, is this. What do we do with the rest of the family? Should the rest of the family be baptized as well? What do you do about the children? Now, here's the trouble. The New Testament is silent on, if you want to call it, infant baptism. And the question is, how do we deal with this silence? The Baptist brethren say this. The New Testament, it didn't say anything about baptizing infants, and therefore it should not be done. The Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Episcopalians and Catholics and others say no. The New Testament is silent on reversing what was already the pattern in Israel. What was the pattern in Israel? that they were to believe and receive the sign of circumcision, and on the eighth day, their children, their male children, were to receive it as well. Now in Jesus Christ, there's neither male nor female. 
So we baptize both men and women, boys and girls. But we argue that the silence here is, you know, it's basically who, who has the burden of proof? Do we have the burden of proof? Or do they have the burden of proof? We're arguing they have the burden of proof because we have a clear command to give the um, sign of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament to the children. Where is the command to reverse that? Where is to, to stop that? I mean, otherwise you're left with this. Imagine you're a dad and you've taken your son to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit of God is poured out, and Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, you wicked people, you've crucified him, you're cut to the quick, and you repent of your sins, you repent of your rejection of Jesus, and you believe in Jesus Christ. And next to you, you got your two-year-old son, who in his skin has the sign of the covenant. Is that child now to not be admitted into the church? That's the position I think you're left with, with the Baptist view. The child already was in the visible church with the sign of circumcision. Is that child now to be excluded? Where is that found in Scripture? We find in Acts chapter 10, you have the household baptism of Cornelius. In Acts 16, you have the household baptism, meaning everybody in the house was baptized. Everybody in Cornelius' house was baptized in Acts chapter 10. That's, that's what the Bible says. We don't know what the composition of that household was, though. Lydia's household is baptized, we're told, in Acts 16. The Philippian jailer's house is baptized in Acts 16 as well. Crispus's household is baptized, we're told, in Acts 18. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 16, Stephanus's house is baptized, or we're told of its baptism. Now, are you to tell me there's not one young child in any of those households? That's an extraordinary argument from silence, isn't it? That there is not one young child in all of those households? That all of them were of sufficient age to profess a, a mature faith in Jesus Christ? Nah. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. Let's put the nail in this coffin here. 1 Corinthians 7. The Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, let's... um, Where do I want to start this? Let's start at verse 12. So the Apostle Paul is dealing uh, with this issue of, uh, that we read here. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife, he's dealing with the subject of divorce in the church. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Okay? The question was, what do you do if one spouse comes to faith in Christ, the other doesn't? If the unbeliever is willing to stick it out with you and he or she is okay with your following Jesus Christ, then do not divorce them, okay? And then verse 13, And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Now here is the part that deals with, I think, and applies tangentially to baptism. And look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. That is, a godly wife can have an influence 
for good on an unbelieving husband. And then he goes on, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Now here's the part I want you to really see here. This last part, this last prepositional clause. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Here's what I want you to see. Paul is saying we're dealing with a first century situation where everybody was an unbeliever in the house. But by the grace of God, at least one of the two parents came to faith. One is still an unbeliever. One is a believer in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, don't get divorced if your unbelieving spouse still is willing to live with you. And, and he, and he, but then he goes on and he says, but what about the status? What's the status of the children of such a marriage where you have one believing parent and one unbelieving parent? And you know what the Apostle Paul says? He says the status of that child is what? They are in the big box. They are in the covenant. They have been engrafted into the tree. They are holy, he says. What does holy mean? Holy means set apart unto God. So that even if you have that difficult situation, and our hearts go out to men and women who are in that situation, where they're married to an unbeliever, your children, the status of your children is that they are in Christ, in the visible church. And thus, I would argue, are to be baptized. Because of the faith of even one believing parent, the children of such a union, their status is that they are holy unto the Lord. I think it's in Ezekiel 16. You might have to check me, but Ezekiel says, these children are not your children. They are my children, he says. Speaking to the Israel, the children that you are given are my children. They belong unto me. They are holy unto me. You know, when the exodus is taking place, you know, it, Moses doesn't say, now look, all you who are adult or of sufficient maturity, follow me. And all of you who are infants and all of you who aren't yet come to the age of discretion and maturity, you stay in Egypt until you make up your own mind. No, they, we don't do that, do we? We take the whole family with us. We take whole households. And we teach them that they were baptized into Moses as they passed through the Red Sea. And that that is pointing them to the Messiah who is to come. And they need to put their faith in the Messiah. Because they are holy unto God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the scripture.